Hello and welcome to episode one of Rippercast, a podcast on the Whitechapel murders where we discuss topics surrounding the slayings of women in the east end of London in the years 1888-1891, roughly. Today's episode is entitled Sudden Death, the suspect Robert Donston Stevenson. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas in the USA. Also with us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is Howard Brown, author, researcher, and proprietor of the website jtrforums.com. Hi, Howard. How are you doing, John? I'm doing Glad to be great. here. Thank you. And joining us from the city of Hull in the UK is researcher and author Mike Covell. Hello, Mike. Hello. Now, towards the end of the show, we'll share our views on other items of interest to ripperologists. But for now, it's sudden death. Robert Donston Stevenson. Howard. Yes, John. As briefly as you can, for those who either don't know or need a refresher course, who was Robert Donston Stevenson? Robert Donston Stevenson was born in Hull. April 20th, 1841. Uh, during his life, he made many, many claims. He, he, wrote, um, he wrote newspaper articles for the Pall Mall Gazette, and he was the author of a book in 1904 called The Patristic Gospels. Um, during, during Stevenson's life, there are um, several instances that have been uh, claimed by uh, leading authors like Nolan Harris and Ivor Edwards, uh, which simply don't pan out, but they are worth examining. Um, in 1888, uh, Robert Donson Stevenson entered Lo the London Hospital with a case of neurasthenia and was released on December 7, 1888. And uh, subsequently, he had a conversation with a retired ironmonger named George Marsh. On uh, December 24th of 1888, George Marsh took samples of his handwriting to the Inspector Thomas Roots at Scotland Yard and revealed his his belief that Stevenson may in fact have, be the Ripper. Two days later on Boxing Day, Stevenson appeared at Scotland Yard and disclosed his views that Dr. Morgan Davies of the same London hospital was in fact a Ripper. As a result of the uh, meeting of Stevenson and Roots, it appears that Stevenson was cleared because of Roots' prior knowledge of Stevenson. In the 20th century, theory about Stevenson being the Ripper emanated from Aleister Crowley, the famed necromancer and black magician, all the way to the 1930s with uh, Bernard O'Donnell, a Fleet Street reporter, who in 1958 put together a manuscript, which we call the O'Donnell Manuscript, but it was actually entitled, This Man Was Jack the Ripper. It was never published. It's available on jtrforums.com for public viewing. Um, Stevenson's modern candidacy within the last 20 years since the centennial of 1988 has been primarily led by Melvin, the late Melvin Harris and currently Ivor Edwards with his book Black Magic Rituals which is found on Blake Publishing. Um, their belief in Stevenson as a bona fide suspect is uh, basically reinforced by the views of Victoria Kremers, a woman who had at one time been a, a business partner with Robert Donston Stevenson and Mabel Collins, the famous theosophist in the early 1890s. Um, Mike, would you like to add anything to this? Pretty much covered all his life there. Um, 
Well, he was his life. He wasn't the first person so, to uh, posit the notion that a black magician could be responsible for the murders. Um, uh, no, he wasn't. Arthur Diocese was uh, Arthur Diocese in October of 1888. Um, more or less scooped Donston with that with that revelation. And there was also letters to uh, the newspapers at the time suggesting, and this I find interesting, um, suggesting that the police use spiritualists and use occultists in Absolutely. an attempt to apprehend Jack the Ripper. Um, Absolutely. Um, and then Robert Donston Stevenson comes forward and um, is, is maybe the second, the most the most uh, prominent figure, let's say, to posit the notion that um, the murders were actually committed by a black magician. Um, Correct. And, and, his, and, and, um, and then the tables turned on Stevenson shortly thereafter. Right. With Stead uh, himself accusing um, Donston of, of being the Ripper, Correct. Well, this, yeah, that's true, but one has to remember when W.T. Stead said that in 1896 in the preface to the story um, that Stevenson submitted to Border, Borderland, uh, which Stead was the publisher of after he left the Pall Mall Gazette, um, Stead is known for saying that for a while there, for a year, he thought that Stevenson was the veritable ripper. The problem with that is that W.T. Stead's own letters that he uh, that he obviously wrote to Stevenson while Stevenson was in the Curry Ward at London Hospital were, these, were the letters that George Marsh had seen and revealed to Inspector Roots on December 24, 1888. So Stead knew that Stevenson was in the hospital at the time. And uh, that, to me, that's incontrovertible evidence that Stead was, was just making a joke or a tongue-in-cheek remark about Stevenson being the veritable ripper. Uh, for instance, Stevenson wrote uh, two more articles in February, January and February of 1889 for Stead while he was in the Pall Mall Gazette. If Stead had believed that he was the veritable Jack the Ripper, why did he allow those two articles to be published? What do you have to say to that, Mike? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously at the time, if, if Stead had thought he was the Ripper, why not come forward and say so? I mean, if, if his newspaper is the first to publish that, it's got to be the scoop of the century rather than Absolutely. letting this guy produce... You know all these stories. Um, you know I can only describe them as fiction coming from from Stevenson. Correct. And you're talking about a man Stead who 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 actually went to prison for um, his involvement with a, a kidnapping scheme to uh, reveal the the, uh, the the issue of child labor and child prostitution. Yeah. John. Yes, right. Okay. Uh, the Maiden Tribute of Babylon is what um, the article in which Stead was uh, was uh, imprisoned for um, procuring. Um, now, there's a current debate on what on what on Stead's motives in that case, but we that's for another show, I'm sure. Um, but um, the issue of black magic. Um, in, in the Jack the Ripper murders, uh, I mean, we have uh, Lees, who... Um, Robert J. Lees. Right, who, who uh, shortly a after the Ripper murders, 
Uh, there were articles uh, that that some people we believed referred to him in using um, his powers of clairvoyance to uh, capture the Ripper. Um, later came the story of Doctor Stanley, who um, has has a similar twist on it, and 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 these two um, stories predated Creamers and Crowley. And, 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 and then O'Donnell's relationship with Creamers. Now, Howard and Mike, um, how do you th- take the, d- d- the Vic- Victoria Creamers um, story and, and stick it into this, this whole um, this, this whole cabal of, of, of black magicians being responsible for the murders. Okay. Um, I'll go first, Mike. Okay. Um, all right. Victoria Kremers came back in 1890 and hooked up with Mabel Collins again. They were friends in South Sea. And for a period of about two years, um, there was a um, – there was a – this trio eventually put together the Pompadour Cosmetic Company – of which uh, Stevenson was um, said to have uh, been the one to put together the um, the uh, make, uh, the, uh, the chemical composition of the, the product and and all that. But during this time, um, uh, Stevenson, according to Kremers, um, did a few things that were sort of suspicious. And um, eventually, the relationship between Collins and Stevenson dissipated to the point where. Mabel Collins allegedly told Kremers that she thought he was he was Jack the Ripper. Um, Kremers did some investigation on her own. She um, ostensibly went into this black deed box and found some bloody uh, cravats. She went into a um, a trunk of his and found some letters. And what, what's very curious about all this is that you have a woman, Victoria Kremers, t- telling telling uh, Bernard O'Donnell in the 1920s or 1930 to be exact. Um, that she she was actually living with someone that she felt was Jack the Ripper. She took Jack the Ripper's word that he would not kill anymore. Uh, there would be only five victims. Um, she also lent money to Jack the Ripper. And then after she moves away, she lets Jack the Ripper, a.k.a. Stevenson, know where she lives so he can come to her house and borrow money. Um, it's pretty implausible, and it it's really stretches the imagination to, to, to buy into this. Right. What I and, think, and, um, and Kremers um, knew Aleister Crowley, was friends with Aleister She was a secretary for Crowley, exactly. And, and, and Crowley um, had claimed to actually be in possession of this box of blood-soaked ties. Yeah, well, then um, we have to... And O'Donnell was a friend of Crowley's. Exactly. But yet, uh, O'Donnell never claims to have seen... Um, from Crowley. Neither did Betty May. Neither did Betty May. Exactly. And, and not to interrupt you, John, or Mike, what I, was, what I had been talking to Mike about previously is that it's entirely possible that the, this whole story about the, the, the bloody ties emanated from Crowley because we don't have any documentation that Kremers actually um, s- sent to uh, Mr. O'Donnell, who unfortunately is deceased, um, and we're only going on the hearsay of what Mr. O'Donnell says that Kremers told him. But the, the fact of the matter, the first time that the, the fact is, the first time that we ever hear about these bloody ties and that anyone owning them was Crowley. Certainly Crowley would have showed them to someone, but he 
he's not known to have done that. Not even to O'Donnell, who no, absolutely not. They were they were intimates of each other, apparently, on the entire subject. Right, exactly. Um, as well as I, I was mentioning earlier to Howard with regards to um, you know Crowley introducing the story of the tie, the the bloody ties. I mean, Crowley at this time was marketing himself as some sort of big black magician himself um, having a story like that would certainly back up the fact that this guy was trying to put himself across as being this big black exactly. magician um, you know and as well with, with if Creamers knew that he was Jack the Ripper if I found that out I'd be straight out of there yeah. I wouldn't be living with the guy and, and giving him my address and certainly not lending him money Absolutely. And, and another thing, I don't mean to interrupt you, Mike or John, but it, 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 it needs to be said that for 38 years after the initial meeting of Mabel Collins and Stevenson, there is not one scrap of paper or one note ever written by Mabel Collins discussing Stevenson or the fact that she, quote, lived with Jack the Ripper, unquote. She never makes any mention of him. There are no writings from, uh, from Victoria Kremers and the O'Donnell manuscript was never published and I, I think one reason is that it, it's, it's, it's entirely possible that the O'Donnell manuscript is a fiction born in the mind of Bernard O'Donnell and it, a lot of it came from Crowley and it was a good fiction story but there are so many holes in it and there's so many there's so many implausible parts of that story if anyone has ever taken the time to read it that um, it's not simply a matter of one, um, one lady being um, irritated at uh, Stevenson for uh, standing in the way of a relationship with Collins because Collins and Kremers were allegedly uh, very intimate. And um, Well, uh, Howard, so you're, you're suggesting that the O'Donnell manuscript was composed as a fraud. Well, actually, it was never published. So, you well, know, it was it's never published, but it was seen by Richard Whittington Egan. It correct. It was seen by Stephen Knight. It, correct. it was read by Melvin Harris. Correct. It was read probably by, I don't know for sure, but Robin O'Dell suggests that he may have read this manuscript. Um, oh, I know. I know several. I know several uh, ripperologists who have had this thing for a decade and a half. It made the rounds. I mean. If if the man was um, attempting to perpetrate a hoax, um, you know what what would have prevented him or any one of these Egan Knight Harris Odell etc cetera, etc cetera, from um, commenting on on his findings? I mean, did they did they take it as the joke that it may have been, or they may I, have? They may have, but one of them certainly did, and that's Melvin Harris. Melvin Harris uses the Kramer's memoirs to support the, sec- the third book in his trilogy of uh, Ripper books. This man was Jack the Ripper, or excuse me, pardon me, the, the true face of Jack the Ripper, which came out in 1994. Um, I'd like to add something else on here um, uh, for people that uh, have, been, have read things that I've written before on JTR forums and in Casebook. Um, there are actually two means motives and opportunities to Donston being a modern suspect. The first uh, was in the 1988 or 89 book called The Ripper File by Melvin Harris, where, where Mr. Harris says on page 168 that after the Kelly murder, 
Stevenson was too ill to continue his, his murders, and he entered the London hospital. Now, at that time, Mr. Harris did not have the actual date that Stevenson went into the hospital, which was July 26th of 1888, and he left on December 7th. But in the interim, between that book and the third book, The True Face of Jackie Ripper, he had found the actual time, the actual dates that he was in and what the reason was, because he does not mention that in the Ripper file. And then in the third book, The True Face of Jackie Ripper, he, he puts forth this theory of fake neurasthenia, something he did not do in the previous book. And we still we still are dealing with that and contending with that today, whether or not he faked neurasthenia. And I, I don't think that he faked anything at all, because within a, a calendar year, Stevenson was in the hospital for 204 days. That doesn't sound like he was faking it to me. And Melvin Harris is um, in the process of writing his books, um, systematically attempted to debunk every suspect that had been mentioned before Robert Donston Stevenson, and and then when and he did a good job of it, I must admit. Um, so when he gets to Stevenson. I mean, he, as his suspect, he just uh, all of a sudden says, you know, this person didn't do it, this person didn't do it, this person didn't do it, but the Loch Ness Monster did it. Or, you know, or, or something to that effect. Don't you agree? Exactly. Exactly. I've been calling it a hoax for about a year a year now. And uh, if, you've, if either of you saw the recent program, it was, well, recent meaning in the last seven months, um, is it real? It was a documentary on television, and it featured Ivor Edwards. And Ivor, um, Ivor went to the London hospital, and he discussed that he discussed his, um, Stevenson as a an occultist, Satanist, and a doctor. And Stevenson, as far as we know, was neither of those things. He was none of them. He wasn't an occultist. Anyone reading about black magic does not necessarily practice it. And Stevenson did write about it, but he also read he wrote about religion, and he wasn't a minister. He wasn't a doctor because there are there are no there are no d- diplomas, and if he and if he had attempted to be a doctor, he certainly made a poor effort of it. One one thing that led me to uh, really re-examine the whole Stevenson story was the 1871 census. By that time, Stevenson had claimed that he had already had a medical degree for ten years, but if you look at the 1871 census, he declares himself as a lieutenant in her his her Majesty's Coast Guard. And in 1881, he calls himself a doctor, but not in practice. Um, Mr. Harris claims in the true face that Stevenson had a diploma emanating from New York. And he probably got that from the Roots report because Inspector Roots mentions Stevenson boasting of having a diploma from New York. Well, a, an American diploma at that time would not have been accepted in, in, uh, in Britain. If Stevenson did come over to America, he just wasted his time because he he comes back to Britain and he doesn't practice medicine. It, may, it really makes no sense for a man to have two diplomas but not to but not to practice. What do you think about that, Mike? It's a waste of time and money. Um, yeah, you know, applying for all that and traveling all that distance to come back and not do anything with it. And um, recently, when I was in Islington, I had a look for all the trade directories, and as a practicing doctor or not practicing doctor. It, surely he'd have had his name in there uh, to run up business, um, nothing, not one mention of Rosalind Stevenson, Robert Donston Stephen, Robert Stevenson, um, nothing whatsoever. I looked through all the medical 
um, entries um, for around about covering a period of about 20 years and there was not one mention um, of this guy um, as an MD, as an author, um, having any kind of business. There was nothing under the alphabetical surname listing. There was nothing under the addresses. Um, there was nothing under any of the um, professions um, that is listed um, mentioning this guy's name. Now, surely, if he wanted to drum up business for himself, he'd have put his name in there and, and mm-hmm. you know made a bit of money from it, but nothing whatsoever. And money and finance is a key theme to the Stevenson story because it's very hard to pin down where he got his money from. One of the things I wanted to mention to Mike was the um, the uh, Borderland article in 1896 where Stevenson – this is one of the most famous point, uh, bones of contention in the whole Stevenson story. In the first two paragraphs of, this, of that article, we notice that Stevenson declares that he met Lytton when he was 22 years old which would have had to be in 1863. But as we both know, all three of us know, that he was working in Customs House. He began working there in uh, April 25th of 1863, and his job was terminated in uh, December 31st of 1868. Um, There is no proof that he ever met met Lytton in the first place. We do know that he plagiarized Lytton when he used um, a a segment of his uh, Borderland article uh, which can be found in The Coming of the Great Race by Lord Lytton in 1836. And I believe uh, Canadian ripperologist Mark Franzoy found that. Um, some of the other elements of the Borderland story have been, proved, have been disproven, uh, especially the part where Stevenson talks about going to Africa and killing a witch doctor named Sube with a talisman that he acquired from Lord Lytton. Well, an Australian ripperologist named Graham Wilson discovered that no Englishman had set foot in that region of the Cameroon uh, until 1875, so so Stevenson certainly didn't go to Africa either. And most of Stevenson's writings were, were um, carbon copies of what H. Ryder, Haggard, and whatever what other whatever author of the time was in vogue. Now um, um, Stevenson also claimed to have fought with Garibaldi, and that is also something that Madame Blavsky had claimed to do. And Correct. I know that they both were acquainted. Now is is there? Uh, it, excuse me, excuse me, John. It's, it's alleged they are acquaintances. That's another bone of contention. There is no proof that Bolvatsky knew Stevenson. Well, I thought there was an incident um, where she was reading some kind of newspaper that mentioned black magic and Jack the Ripper, and she uh, had some familiarity with. That's how she was reading the Paul Mall Gazette articles. I believe that she was. I believe that she thought that that was the Earl of Crawford. Am I am I right about that, Mike? That's right. Yeah, it appears in the O'Donnell uh, manuscript. Um, I think Kramer's or Kramer's walks into the room and sees Blavatsky sat there reading this article, right. and they're all quite excited. And she goes yeah. over. Um, they thought it was the Earl of Crawford, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. here, subsequently, um, Kremers discovered that it was Stevenson that wrote the December 1st article in the Pall Mall Gazette. It's called One Who Thinks He Knows. But um, as far as Blavatsky's service to Garibaldi, if if this five-foot-tall, 250-pound woman had served for Garibaldi, uh, I believe that she is alleged to have served with him in 1867. Um, Stevenson at that time was in his fifth year in his sinecure at the Customs House in Hull. So it's 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 quite possible that they ne- those two never met or traveled in the same social circles. For example, when 
um, Collins urged Stevenson to write this story called African Magic in 1891 or 1890. I'll be corrected here. Um, it was Collins who approached Bolvatsky, not Stevenson, because Stevenson had not been introduced to her. And, and Blavatsky's uh, assistant at the time was Creamers, who Collins. Col Collins. Collins. Collins was Collins was the right hand woman for Blavatsky up until they had a, a dissolution in a relationship. Right. And Collins was getting a little too popular. So, is there any evidence at all that that um, Stevenson uh, served? Uh, well, Mike? The, the only thing that we've come across recently, um, I believe it was Andy Aliff that found this, was the muster rolls held at the Bishop Gates Institute, um, which were compiled by George That's Jacob in London, right, Mike? That's correct, yeah. Um, it was basically George uh, Olyoke was in charge of the recruitment of the British volunteers. One of the names in the muster rolls was a Robert Donson Stevenson. Um Age 22, I mean, this was in 1863, this entry. His height's given as 5'10", uh, and his address is given as Skullcoats Hull, but then it's altered and it reads Four River Terrace, uh, North Islington. Now, a, a muster roll, I'm not sure, I'm not military inclined, but as far as I'm aware, a muster roll is just something that the volunteers go and give the name. It doesn't necessarily mean they go to fight. Um, uh, this falls right in between the period of time when it, it was at Old Customs House. Um, it's Mike, a bit of a puzzle. Me, pardon me one second, Mike. Did you say 1863? 1863, the entry was left in the okay. in a, a book of muster rolls. Okay. All right. The, the issue with that is if it, if he, his name is in that muster roll, then it had to happen in either January, February, or March, because in April, April 25th, 1863, is when Stevenson definitely was in Customs House, and we have that from Andy Aleph, the same Andy Aleph. Yeah. So there's an issue right there. Yeah, definitely. All right. Okay. So just let's, uh, let's uh, fast forward to 1888, um, and and where Stevenson is in the in the London Hospital in the East End. Um, okay. He he claims, um, and it, to to have witnessed uh, his doctor, Doctor Davies, giving a demonstration of, of the Jack the Ripper murder, um, the murder of Mary Kelly, I believe, in which yes, um, Donston claims that because the press had reported that no one's ever discovered yet, but that semen was found um, in Mary Kelly. The description of the act that the Dr. Davies performed uh, in front of, uh, apparently Mike has discovered, nine, at least nine other patients um, in the same ward. Um, Stevenson goes and, and, and uh, writes a letter to the police about that. Correct? Correct. Correct, yes. He said he did that in front of Dr. Dr. Evans, a, a, a fellow patient. Um, and that there were five other medical um, personnel in the same room when uh, Dr. Davies was describing the, um, um, how would you say, the uh, rear entry of the victim. And um, anyway, um, this is this is what he discloses when he goes to talk to um, when he goes to talk to Inspector Roots on December twenty sixth, Boxing Day, eighteen eighty eight. Uh, and it, allegedly, this is the this is the reasoning behind his uh, bizarre behavior of um, of trying to finger um, 
Dr. Davies is Jack the Ripper. In fact, he makes no bones about it. I mean, he goes to the police and, 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 and divulges what he thinks are the uh, sound reasons for the police to investigate Dr. Davies. Right, and, and um, no evidence has been found that the police actually ever investigated Dr. Davies. Is that correct? No, not at all. I actually went through the meeting minutes, which cover 1888 and 1889 from the London Royal London Hospital. Um, these cover patients, um, finances, going in, finances coming out, etc. Um, they also cover um, all the doctors and surgeons and what they're up to, if anyone's complained, if any of the patients have lodged a complaint. And nothing was lodged against Davis. Um, no. There's no records of any police coming into the hospital and asking him his whereabouts on any of the dates of the murders whatsoever. Right now, there's been some um, question as to whether um, Stevenson would have been able to leave the hospital in order to commit these murders and then return. Maybe Howard can um, talk about that theory, and then Mike can address what he's discovered in his recent research. Uh, in the um, in the study of Stevenson, one is. Um, led to believe that Stevenson would have had free access to the front door at any time of the day or night. Now, what's unusual about this, and rather striking about it, is that at no time do we ever hear about Stevenson going to meet Stead. In fact, rather that he receives letters from him in the hospital, in the Curry Ward. And these are the same letters that I mentioned before that George Marsh refers to to Inspector Roots on December 26th. Um, I'm not intimately familiar with the uh, goings-on at the London Hospital, but I know Mike is. Um, perhaps Mike would like to carry on now. Yeah, I mean, basically, both Curry Ward and Davis Ward um, were both situated on the third floor. At night, the gates, the external gates were locked, um, and the only way in or out was through the lodge, um, which was at the front. Now, the gatekeeper who held the key... Um, obviously emergencies in or out and staff in or out so there's no way whatsoever he could have got through there um, being on the third floor as well obviously poses problems in getting down to the ground floor um, without being seen um, I do know that Curry Ward um, was a ward with roughly about 20 beds in um, so again people would have been there to see him coming in or going out now there's been this could he have jumped over the, the gates well First of all, the gates stand at around seven or eight foot. Um, I took some photos recently. I stood next to them, and there were double massages, and there was no way whatsoever. Well, I say I'm quite fit, but there's no way I could jump over those. Now, what we have to remember is that Stevenson still had some gunshot um, lodged in his leg, um, so surely that would have affected his physical ability uh, in jumping over that gate. Um, right. But the information is there in the yearbooks, 1888 and 1889. Um, there's also a fantastic book which charts the history of the Royal London Hospital, which does show you maps. Um, the maps are off the ground floor, but it does say in writing that both Curry and Davis were situated on the third floor um, to the rear of the hospital. Um, so it would have been a major problem getting out and getting back in again without being seen. Excellent, excellent. And... Um now, but Melvin Harris, um, his theory was not that Stevenson escaped from the London Hospital. 
to commit the murders in the return because uh, he never actually had Stevenson in the London hospital um, for the duration of the killings. Is that correct? That's the first book in the um, in in the Ripper file, which was, which came out in uh, late eighty eight, late nineteen eighty eight, which was it, it ran um, at the same time as the Secret Identity of Jack the Ripper, the Centennial Program, around that time eighty eight or eighty nine. In that book, on page one hundred and sixty eight, uh, Mister Harris claims, and his his rationalization is that Stevenson was simply too physically debilitated to commit any more murders and then after the Kelly murder on November 9th he goes into the hospital well that's not true he had already been in the hospital for three and a half months prior to the Kelly murder right but then as I said before about a half hour ago um, in the in, in the period of time in the interim between 80, 1988 and 1994 Mr. Harris must have gotten his hands on the London Hospital Register and he realized his mistake that um, Stevenson had been in a hospital uh, even before the Tabram murder, which is not considered a canonical murder or one of the McNaughton Five. But in any event, he had been in a hospital before August. So it presented a very big problem for him. And the problem was solved by him coming up with a fake neurasthenia claim. Um, we don't see Mr. Harris claiming anything, any such thing in May of 1889 when Stevenson again goes into the hospital, and this time they put down chlorohydrate. Is that right, Mike? That's right, yeah. Yeah, he was... He Basically, was a, he, a, when you're looking at the, the London um, hospital patient registries, um, the, there's actually a little bit of explanation um, as to what a lot of the sections mean. Now... Basically, when, it, when Stevenson went into the hospital, he went in on his own accord. And this is established in the register under a referral section, which is left blank. If that's been filled in by someone, it means that you've been sent there by someone. So he's basically gone because he's feeling ill. Um, yeah. It was at the hospital without the approval of the hospital governor. Um, and again, there's a small heading which says with or without ticket. And he didn't have a ticket Um to, to gain admittance to the hospital, um, you had to go through a pre-admission meeting, and this was for everybody. Um, now, it, it was in there, so he must have gone through that. It must have been seen by someone at the hospital who thought that this condition was genuine. Now, basically, looking at the yearbooks, 1888 and 1889, it does say there is a small list in there that mentions that they don't want patients to stay in there over, I think it was 30 days, unless it's serious. It was in there. Yeah, a lot he stayed there 134, that. yeah, four and a half times that long. And this is an indigent um, ward, is that correct? Where the, the only patients that were admitted were the ones that could not claim residence elsewhere. Yeah, I and mean, basically what they did was, if they didn't think that it was serious enough, they'd send you off to a warehouse where you could basically get cared for but not to the high standards that the hospital was offering at the time and afterwards as well the the do reviews on you after these 30 day periods and if the thought that you that you as well you'd be released or the other alternative was to send you off to these care homes like the ones that you see in brighton um and again you'd get a level of care but not to the same degree that you'd get in the hospital and for some reason stevenson's condition was so serious that he was kept there for that length of time. Right. 
And, and he had no fixed permanent address at this time, is that right? No. No, he didn't. He had lived in Brighton up until uh, a period of at least one month before July 26, 1888. We know that he was there. Uh, we don't know exactly what day that he left. That's, that remains to be seen. Um, Mike and I both think that he may have tried to live with his brother Richard Stevenson in Islington. Isn't that correct, yeah, Mike? That's right, yeah. Richard moved to Islington around about the same time that um, Robert Donston Stevenson uh, married Annie Stevenson. Um, the, uh, another interesting aspect is that when Robert Donston Stevenson um, was living in Islington after um, 1888-1889 it was just around the corner from the church um, sorry right. prior to that just after the wedding when Annie and Robert Donson Stevenson moved to Islington they were living around the corner from the church where they got married um, and it was about 20 minutes walk away from where his brother was living um, right. and his brother lived in the same place all the time um, up until later in his life when he, when he moved out of, of Gibson Square and this was the wife that um, Melvin Harris claimed he had beheaded. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. In, in, a, in a Ripper file, yeah, he does. He does mention. He does. Uh, no, excuse me. In the True Face of Jack the Ripper, he mentions beheading. I think that's a, uh, just one of the typical embellishments uh, when reading that book. Mister Harris writes a very colorful story about Stevenson. Um, he's even prepared a ten-point guideline for the serial killer, which. Practically every man that I ever met could fill. Um, <laughs> there, you know, it says a lot about me. I know, but um, it's it, it's so generic that anyone could fit it, and it's just an attempt to foist this guy into the public. Stevenson, as a suspect, really was really finished in, on December twenty sixth, eighteen eighty eight. That's my view. But the contemporary attempt to make uh, Stevenson a suspect is a real mystery, and it's especially a mystery in light of the fact that Mr. Harris was a professional investigator that worked for the BBC, for Arthur Clarke, uh, the inventor of the satellite, the communication satellite. And it's very strange that someone would simply drop all caution and accept this guy as a viable suspect. Um, in, the, in the subsequent years, Stevenson is ranked fairly high as, as a suspect, uh, there have been some some pretty prominent devotees of the Stevenson cause. I know that Mike and I both felt that Stevenson um, Stevenson had the bona fides to be a, a, a good suspect until we really examined the, the whole story. And we found so many flaws and so many intentional flaws, uh, intentional um, uh, declarations that are simply sourceless. And that's, that's the big problem with Stevenson is the source. Right. Am I right, Mike? What, um, that's right. Yeah. Back to, yeah. We'll we'll touch on why you guys are reformed uh, Stevensonites here in a second. But um, what really happened to his wife? What happened to his wife? Well, um, I know that it it's it was lightly touched upon in the true face of Jack the Ripper by Mr. Harris that uh, he may have disposed of her. And then in the uh, 2002 book, The Black Magic Rituals by Ivor Edwards, Ivor uh, theorizes that the, um, the uh, alleged murder of his wife, the torso that was found in the Regent's Canal, which is one of the um, uh, umpteen 
uh, residences that Stevenson has under his belt, he theorized that that may have been a milk run, that, that he may have killed his wife. To me, it would be just like saying that his wife left him and swam the English Channel to France. I mean, there's no proof that he ha- ever had any acts of violence in his life. Um, in fact, my wife, Nina Brown, uh, found a... Uh, newspaper article about the demise of Ann Stevenson. She, she retained her name. Uh, she was born in Thorne. She was, she, was she was the same age, and she had the same profession. She, she died in a domestic accident. She died of coal gas inhalation. And that's one of the little facts and details that have been surfacing over the last three or four years that people haven't really talked about. They've tried to put, sweep that under the rug because, number one, Stevenson is a draw. Black magic, occult, sinister, living inside of a hospital and running right back into a hospital after committing these murders. He draws people into the case, and that's a good thing. That's good for newbies, but for people that are serious scholars of, of ripperology, people with, a, with a, a purist approach to it, and they really want to study this case, they're going to take all the facts that Mike and I have been bringing up, and some other people too, and they're going to examine them, digest them, and they're going to see, I think, as Mike and I do, that this is he's not only a non-suspect, we have to question why he was ever presented in the first place. Mike? Yeah, I agree. I mean... Annie Stevenson's there for all to see after this body appeared. Um, I think people have just latched onto that as if they want to make him their suspect, that that's the way to go by saying that he did this this act um, to this unfortunate. Um, but if that's the case, if it was you know if, if it was a milk run, why were none of the um, C five found with their heads chopped off? Right. Um, it just makes no sense whatsoever. No, it doesn't. It never did. Um, and and uh, but you you must admit that the uh, the candidacy of Stevenson as a Ripper suspect has some coincidences. In that, here was a man who um, was the first to present black magic as a possible motive for the murder, save Diocy. Um and and then he goes and accuses um, Doctor Davies. Correct. George Marsh turns around and accuses Stevenson in 1888. Fast forward 20 years, and you have another group of people in the black magic milieu, being Crowley, Kremers, et al., who turn around and suspect the exact same man who, in whether they knew it or not, in 1888, was in fact put forward as a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murder. Okay, but there's a different, um, John, that's, there's a good point. There's a different basis for why Marsh believed that uh, Stevenson was the Ripper. His belief in Stevenson being the Ripper was his demonstration in the Prince Albert Inn. Um, Stevenson had just gotten out of the hospital and he had not had any alcohol for a long time. He said, simply may have said too much. Marsh may have believed in what he said because, well, we know that he believed in what he said because he took samples of his handwriting and he presented it to the police. But he did not mention anything about the black magic, black magic, or the black arts. Um, as you said, that twenty years later on, we we find Crowley and Kremers. Well, actually, it's not Kremers. We have to we have to we have to take this as a, take this with a grain of salt. Kremers, we have no no actual writing from her. We have no no documentation she ever wrote anything, and the fact that she had been had known um, Stevenson 
may have been something, as Mike intimated before, something that Crowley picked up on and embellished, because we know Crowley throughout his career was a you know, great prevaricator. And I, I think that Mike has touched on a, a very good point there, that Crowley could have used Kremer's um, alliance with Stevenson back in 1890, in 1891 and early 1892, and taken some of the snippets of information that Kremers gave to Crowley and fabricated this whole story about the black ties. Now, it, it's... Um, you meant Kremers' association with Stevenson and... Kremers' association with Stevenson, correct, right. and Collins. And we, uh, once again, we have, we have nothing documented that Collins ever said anything about Jack the Ripper in any of her writings, in any of her books. And she lived for 30-something years afterwards, and not one, not one, not one word. And, and uh, I, mean, I was playing devil's advocate in that last question, as you may know. Sure. Um, um, oh, it's good to discuss Donson. It's, it's uh, sort of like my favorite topic. And, I, uh, I like Stevenson a lot. And I, I know I've read a lot of Crowley, and I, I, I completely and totally agree with you on his um, art of embellishment because, I mean, he's a notorious liar. Exactly. So, so um, he... He very well could have been the source for all of this, right? Exactly, and because of his because of his um, unusual relationship with O'Donnell, because O'Donnell had been sued by Crowley, and Mr. O'Donnell was a Fleet Street reporter, a crime reporter. He wrote later, several that, Now, what he was sued at a later date is that is that correct? Yes. Hader Preston is the, the person. Hader Preston was a gentleman that worked on Fleet Street, and he was the person that allegedly told Mr. O'Donnell that he should talk to this lady that worked for Crowley, which presents another problem because if if Crowley and if Crowley and O'Donnell had known each other, then I'm sure that that Crowley may have said something to, to O'Donnell, you know, about these ties before, or w excluding Kremers altogether. It just seems to me a convenient piece of fiction, that's all. And to me, that's the reason why it was never produced. But then again, that's just my opinion. Why the Box of Ties was never produced? The Box of Ties? Or the O'Donnell manuscript. Oh, oh, oh both of them. I, I don't believe in the Box of Ties story at all. It, it, it simply makes no sense um, that Stevenson would keep these, these uh, souvenirs of these bloody cravats um, even if they were, to, even if even if Stevenson did have ties, there's no guarantee that that was blood. And we, and once again, we don't know if Kremers actually said any of this. Right uh, now, um, Kremers could have just uh, alluded to uh, cravats. And, yes, and, and that would have uh, sparked Crowley's imagination to just uh, take that exactly. And he had a vivid imagination. I agree, he did. All right, so um, uh, you brought it up, Howard. So uh, uh, Stevenson was at one time your main suspect in these murders, as yeah, absolutely. he was Mike's. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's start with Mike. Um, what uh, what it started you down the Stevenson path, and um, what what changed you around? That first and foremost, with him being a a, a local um, and being born and living just down the road from where we live, um, I'd always heard rumours that supposedly Jack the Ripper was from Hull. Um, there were rumours that he was a doctor 
that it was involved in the Black Arts. Um, and it seemed like a logical place to start is to look local uh, and expand from there. Um, the the final nail in the coffin for me um, in sort of saying that it wasn't was going to a London hospital and looking at the transcripts myself and seeing that there's no way I could have got out and done these things that you know people have been putting forward all these years. Um, it was as good as locked up, nice and safe and warm in there. And there's no way whatsoever. It could have got. It was in a, a unique position in terms of that he probably read about the case um, and discussed it with those that were on the ward with him. Um, but as as far as his involvement goes, you know, it pretty much ends there, rather than the, the letters that he sent uh, and being accused himself and accusing someone. There was there was no way whatsoever that he could have got and committed him. Yeah. No Mike, excuse me, not to interrupt you, let me ask you this. Do you see that the Whitechapel murders were a convenient way, or actually a, like a blessing for Stevenson? They, they actually provided oh, him a way of getting out of the hospital. Provided him with a meal ticket, um, you, you know, right into the newspapers, and it, it was a sort of subsidised, or even provided him with an income. Um, right. And then in later years, you know... If these people are talking about him being Jack the Ripper, he's, he's obviously, you know, loving the, being the centre of attention and, you know, he was in a unique position and it, I think it helped him a great deal. Now, Howard, um, about your interest in Stevenson as a suspect, how did that start out and and what swayed your your opinion of him as a viable suspect? Well, my interest in Stevenson as a suspect began probably around year 2002 uh, when I read some things on Casebook, the uh, great website www.casebook.org. Um, I read some uh, work by Melvin Harris and, and more importantly by Ivor Edwards, especially his distance theory that the murders were committed 930 to 950 yards apart. And to me, it seems really coincidental that that could happen. But then again... That for whether for whether for good or bad, that's what started me down the the road into into believing Stevenson may have been the Ripper, eliminating um, Mary Kelly as a victim. Uh, well, actually, no. Um, I, I at the, at that time and and for the most part, I still do think that the Ripper committed that murder, but that was that wasn't uh, part of the uh, pattern. I, I know that that one doesn't fit into the. Uh, 930, 950-yard pattern. But those the, the first four from Nichols all the way through Eddowes, I believe that it could have been a pattern. So the more I read about it and the more I read uh, work, uh, the, the work of Mr. Edwards and Mr. Harris, I, I, took, I took it with a grain of salt that these sources were verifiable. And in studying it, I realized that virtually none, nothing is verifiable. Almost all of the sources, if they come from Stevenson, they have to be taken with a lot of salt. And some of the claims by the authors just don't pan out for whatever reason. Um, and the more I looked into it, and then the, the more I looked into it, it looked fishy. And as a result, I bought the second book, The Ripper File. And when I saw on page 168 the claim that Stevenson had entered the hospital after the Kelly murder, it, to me it clinched it. That this was the reason why in the third book, The True Face of Jack the Ripper, that Mr. Harris put in the, the – he unveiled the premise that Stevenson faked neurasthenia when he hadn't done so in the first, the first time. 
And by by presenting the fake neurasthenia, he's providing the the means of Stevenson going out at night, which of course Mike has proven now that he couldn't have. He was going out at night and using the London Hospital as some sort of bolt hole. Um, and then going back in, he only had to go out on four occasions, if you believe in the canonical five, and and being Jack the Ripper. And to me, the greatest mystery of this is is not necessarily that Stevenson could be a suspect, but is why sus- why he was made a suspect in 1988. That to me is the biggest mystery at all of all. Right, and you have a map on your wall of the locations of the Jack the Ripper murders. Oh, I ha- yeah, absolutely. And, and I want to read to you real quickly um, a very short letter to the editor of the Daily Telegraph, dated October 2nd. Sir, in examining the chart representing the locality of the Whitechapel murders, published in your issue of today, it is curious to observe that the lines drawn through the spots where the murders were committed assume the exact, the exact form of a dagger, the Hilton blade of which passed through the scenes of the 6th, 2nd, 1st, and 3rd murders, the extremities of the guard making the 4th and 5th. Further, the spot where the portion of the apron belonging to the victim of the meter square tragedy was picked up lies in the imaginary line which forms the hilt of the dagger. Can this possibly afford a clue to the position of the next atrocity? I am, sir, your obedient, uh, your obedient servant observer from London, October 2nd. Now, there's a, a curious letter that ends up get, uh, forming the basis of the the Stevenson theory, is it not? That's one of the one of the one of the two major Stevenson three major Stevenson theories. Mr. O'Donnell had one too. He had he has patterns in the O'Donnell manuscript. Um, uh, Mr. Harris doesn't make any claims about any pattern. I don't believe uh, Mr. Edwards does. He has a, he has a theory um, that they um, represent the Vesica Pisces. But uh, Arthur Diocese, I believe, scooped. Uh, I think I mentioned that before. Arthur Diocese wrote to the um, newspapers in October about the um, possibility of black magic uh, being involved in the uh, murders. I believe it was a Chapman murder. What, am I right, Mike? That's right. Yeah, it, it was a Chapman murder with murder matches. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I I can look at the, I can look at the layout too, and I can see um, a parallelogram. And I, and you know, I don't think I've I've never heard of anybody claiming that a crazy mathematician created these murders. And I'm not trying to be facetious, but you know, I, I guess anyone could see anything they want in the layout. But just just for um, the sake of honesty, that's the reason why I got involved with Stevenson in the first place. Much to some people's chagrin, I'm I'm sure. That that the, um, the locations of the victims' bodies formed some kind of symbol, and he was premeditating not necessarily um, the victims uh, or the status of the victims, female uh, low-class prostitutes, as so much as the location of the victims. Right. And and um, that has its repercussions to this day, where there is still ongoing debate whether um, such and such was a casual prostitute, whether Catherineto is correct, could have been considered um, hooking, for lack of a better term, on the night she was murdered. Um, 
And and that I find um, interesting, but but at the same time um, incredibly unlikely. I mean that 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 the murderer would scout out the locations of of his um, killings based on some kind of preconceived. Um, two triangles forming a cross. Right, exactly. Or, let me let me let me just add this before I forget, John. Um, this is not the this is not the only time that a pattern has ever been determined to appear in a series of murders. Anyone familiar with the Zodiac Killer case that happened in the United States? Uh, someone took an acetate and put it over a map of the San Francisco Bay Area, and they found that these murders occurred um, apart from each other on a fifty-seven degree radian angle. Um, and it's not also the first time. It's it's not the only time. Not it. It's it's not the only time that someone has ever been considered to be a a killer that would take seek refuge in a hospital. The Cleveland Torso murders in the 1930s uh, featured a suspect that Elliot Ness believed that was Jack the Ripper. I mean, um, excuse me, the Cleveland Torso killer that uh, would seek refuge in the, um, in the state mental institution. Right, and wrote threatening letters to the police. From exactly. The yeah. So, the, so there's some kind of there's a precedent for the modern Stevenson theory. As Stevenson being a you know someone who writes letters, which he obviously did, which he obviously lived in a London hospital, and which he obviously made a comment about a pattern appearing in the December first issue of the Pall Mall Gazette, as I previously mentioned. Right. And um, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, some of those there's a couple of Zodiac killings, and we're talking about the Zodiac killer uh, up in San Francisco. Correct and in the 1960s, um, that that did not quite match that pattern that mm-hmm. that was drawing. There there was a few exceptions, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, you'd have to ask Tom Voigt. He's the he's the expert on the Zodiac killer. Um, I'm trying to currently I'm trying to get Tom Voigt to um, participate in the five questions forum on the on JTR forums, but I'm I'm going to ask him about that. I'm right. thank, and I, that's I appreciate like you mentioning Mary Kelly is excluded as a Stevenson victim because she was killed indoors and doesn't and and, and her murder location doesn't match up to uh, the preconceived theory of of the symbol that that he was going for. Is that right? Well. Um, I think Michael backed me up on this. I believe Mr. Harris and Mr. Edwards both believe that Mary Kelly was the fifth victim and that there were only five victims because what they're doing is they're parroting, parroting the line that Stevenson ostensibly told Kremers that there would be only five victims. But then it's unusual if you read the December 1st Pall Mall Gazette, Mike can back me up on this too, that Stevenson mentioned six victims. Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure if he's including... Uh Martha Tabram, I'm not sure. I think he probably is. Um, yeah, he but, includes Tabram. Um, speaking of patterns, the Ipswich prostitute murders, um, which are the guy who's supposedly done these recent atrocities, he's on trial at the moment in the UK. They're saying that the murder sites form a cross. Um, yeah. And some of the guys were talking about that over on the, the Casebook website that the where the murders occurred, or where, at least where the bodies were found, form a cross, um, taking into consideration as well that there were some other girls that went missing that were also um, local prostitutes, 
Um, and these girls have never been found, but they also fall within the lines um, of this particular cross. It's pattern recognition. It's something that most people do. Yeah, there's, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of murders that probably form some kind of pattern if you looked for a pattern or you came across it by accident. Wouldn't you agree, Mike? I agree, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, um, Robin O'Dell in his book Ripperology says that the precise locations of the murders were therefore of critical importance. This is uh, uh, according to the um, uh, black magic motive of Stevenson. Um, by including two murders not conventionally accepted as Ripper murders and declining to include Mary Kelly because she was murdered indoors, the six killings that result form a cross. Harris wrote, quote, The point of glory had to be reached by dominating and eliminating scarlet women at the moment of orgasmic release, blah, blah, blah. This, in turn, would unleash tremendous psychic injury. So is that... Um, is Odell just quoting um, Harris's first book, and then he? I mean, apparently Harris did have a theory on on Stevenson attempting to form some kind of cross symbol in the uh, layout of the location of the victims' bodies. Mike, I think I think the idea was in regards to a black magic approach is that. Forming a cross with the victims would give the killer some sort of superior power. People have argued that it was in, invisibility, right. yeah. And you know, if you wanna, if you wanna go down the road and believe that sort of thing, you know. No, 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 I don't at all. It's just that um, I find it interesting that 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 type of theory um, put forward by Harris, um, put forward by Donston, if you believe that the. the um, the uh, his uh, wording of the uh, two uh, two triangles that across the tri delta. However, he signed his name on the on the uh, from a man who thinks he knows or whatever. Um, it, it's interesting that 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 um, to this day people can be sucked in to. Um, to the theory that, that, that the murderer was trying to form some kind of symbol on the ground. Without the That's the draw. The That's the attraction. That's the attraction. It's, mean, it's far more attractive to have someone... Within a, the London hospital, did he, did he have, you know, I mean, did the guy have a map uh, um, all worked out to the, with the locations of the victim's bodies and, and skipped out on Kelly, which is, <laughs> which is the victim that... Um, he claimed Dr. Davies, um, it, it, you know, virtually confessed or simulated the murder of. I mean, it's all, it's all rather puzzling. But um, so, so you guys, um, why don't you give your final verdict on Donston as a suspect here and, um, and give a summary of what you believe and... Um, and basically, uh, you know, say, say what, uh, last words on Stephen. Okay. Mike? I think he was in a unique place at a unique time. I think that it was a great opportunity for him to become involved and make a little bit of money. And ultimately a, a meal ticket. Um, but 
in terms of being the ripper, no chance. Howard? Okay, I believe that Stevenson was a police contemporary police suspect for two days, December 24th to December 26, 1888. Everything after that is sourceless and, and it's, it's mere it's specious speculation. The only issue I have with Stevenson now is to figure out why Stevenson went under the radar and no one else picked up on the stuff that Mike and I have been picking up for the last 20 years. It's been accepted, and it's been accepted by authors like Evans and Begg, that he's that he he has he he did practice black magic. Uh, is Mr. Rodell, Mr. Rumblow, they all mention it in his books. Not that they believe in Stevenson, not that they believe he was Jack the Ripper, but the fact that they it's it's been this constant, insistent, rhythmic perpetuation of these myths that he was an occultist, a black magician, a doctor, all these things. None of that stuff is proven. And none of that stuff will probably ever be proven in the positive. He, Mike has pro- shown um, evidence that he, he wasn't a doctor. The, um, now the, the, the evidence is, is solidly in favor of the, the modern uh, Donston theory as being a hoax. And the, the total amount of time that Stevenson was ever a contemporary police suspect in 1888 was two days. That's just my, my view on it. Right. I'd be willing to debate anyone... Um, anywhere at any time on Stevenson if they'd like to um, discuss uh, Stevenson as even being a moderately uh, viable suspect, but he's not. As Mike has proven that he couldn't have gotten out of that hospital. No. And so therefore, everything else, uh, you know, after that is is dross. It, it's it's worthless. He, if he can't get out of the hospital, he's not a he's not a suspect. Of all the people in London in 1888, there's one guy that we know exactly where he was for 134 days. In, before and after the last uh, accepted vi- Ripper victim in 1888, and that's Stevenson. We know where he was, and yeah. why a professional investigator or a, 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 a another author with an accumulated 70 years of of interest in Ripperology would would foist this guy onto the into the lap of Ripperology is beyond me. And that's my final word on it. All right, and and. Um Anyone who who is um, listening to this podcast and would like to debate uh, Howard Brown or Mike on this issue, because there are um, uh, Melvin Harris is deceased, unfortunately, so he can't defend himself or his writings. Ivor Edwards, who has been mentioned in this broadcast, is a living being and um, is more than welcome to join this debate, um, and he. Um, conducts his own website in the UK that I'll provide a link to in the show notes. Um, so uh, I just want to make that clear that, um, you know, pro-Stevenson people are, of course, uh, invited most definitely to talk about this further with Howard and Mike. Is that right, guys? Absolutely. Yep. No problem Absolutely. That's what Ripperology is all about. Speculation is the lifeblood of ripperology. It's what we need to keep it going. All right, let's get on to a few other things before we close this show out. Um, Donston aside, um, there are uh, there the, the new issue of the Ripperologist uh, published a photo of of Joseph Levant, um, who was the witness who may have seen the victim Catherine Eddowes 
um, with Jack the Ripper moments before her death outside of Church Passage Meter Square. Um, there's been some discussion as to um, whether photographs of um, witnesses, victims, uh, dead or alive, um, suspects, etc., hold any bearing on this case. What are your guys' opinion on 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 the uh, discovery of, of photographs of, of um, the victims, suspects, witnesses, etc.? Um, all right. Well, I'll just say that I think it, I think it's a wonderful thing to have a photograph of uh, Joseph Lewend. Um, it it really doesn't um, it doesn't really add to the accumulated knowledge that we have of the case, but it puts a human face on this witness, and he's an he's an important witness, and he's also important in the fact that he says he couldn't uh, recognize the person he saw in Mitre Square, Mike. Yeah, I'm going to shock you all now by saying that I've not actually seen the photograph, <laughs> but I've heard... Uh, Go to my website, www.rippernet.com, and I have um, a very small reproduction of the cover of the next Ripperologist that shows his picture. Yeah. I've read the, the fantastic reports coming in from all the guys that have been subscribing, and you know they're all in, in awe. And it just goes to show that there is still stuff out there if you're willing Amen. to look for it. Well, yeah, you can find it. And, and what I, the way I look at it is that every human has a past, and every photograph tells a story. And and this man um, is seated, uh, looking. I mean, is an elderly gentleman sitting sitting with his family, and and that means something, you know. To, um, to the case, as much as some would argue against it, um, you know of this man's past. You see um, him surrounding by, his, by him surrounded by his family, and and it and it is important to the case. And now, if if uh, a photograph were to surface of um, of this gentleman wearing a red. A handkerchief with a crazy look at his eye, next to his wife, who has a black eye, then that, you know, uh, uh, the, the people that argue against photographs... Of, you just uh, made a new suspect, John. Well, but you, you, you know what I'm getting at is that... I you know. know. It's all in yeah. the eye of the beholder. What you want to take from the image um, that's presented to us... Uh, and how it relates to the case, yeah. you know. It, it certainly is more important than having a, a, the theory that this uh, French individual came up with that Melvin McNaughton himself was Jack the Ripper. No, it's 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 an important thing like Mike animated. And as you've been saying, it does put a human face on this man, and it also shows that there are there is other data out there available. Right. And that's and, great. What Ripperology and, needs, it depends on it. Right, and it is a, a case of... Um, Possibly looking into the eyes of, of the only man, um, hypothetically, who, who could have seen Jack the Ripper, and that and that's always important, in in my opinion, anyway. I think it's in in our our, our mutually held opinion. Well, I think all three of us agree with that, and I think the majority of people in Ripperology, you're going to have a few people that will dissent, and they 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 don't see much. Uh, value in having a photo of Lewende. Well, that's their opinion. I I believe as you two guys do that, that it's a, it's an important find. It's good. It's really a positive thing. Yep. 
All right. Um, the second thing I wanted to ask you guys, um, and Mike, I don't know if you'd be excluded from this question, but the, the U.S. Ripper Conference was announced to take place in Knoxville, Tennessee this coming October. Um, are either of you attending? Well, I had planned on going, but um, I believe what Nina and I are going to do is go in, um, to the U.K. conference in 2009 if um, they will allow my kind in England. Mike, you going to let me over there? Yeah, sure, mate. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> okay. Can I, can I, do you have a lot of beer in your fr refrigerator over there? I don't drink, Howard, but we do have beer in the fridge. Oh, well, you're going to have to start <laughs> drinking, aren't you? Okay. Now, I'm, 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 I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it, John. I understand that uh, uh, Rippercast is going to uh, appear at the convention. That's a great I, thing. I think I'm, that's going to be a good thing for Ripperology. Sure I'm 90% sure that I'm going to be there. Now, good. would I have taken Niagara Falls over Knoxville, Tennessee? Absolutely. But, <laughs> but because it's in, you know, what do you do? It, it'll be my first Ripper conference, and, and I hope to be there. I'm planning on being there. Um, I just need more details as far as hotel rooms, what the speaker's lineup is going to be and all that. But, but I do hope to be there. And I do hope to attend the U.K. conference in 2009 also. Great. We'll I'll, have somebody to, uh, I'll have somebody to... Um from the states over there, besides Nina and myself, that's great. No, if that's the only opportunity I, I I would have to meet Howard Brown. Then I'm going to have to <laughs> uh, definitely plan on being at the UK. <laughs> <in 2009>. <laughs> you <laughs> better right. watch what you wish for, John. Oh well, <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. Yeah, now, I look forward now, to go to. Now, okay, the final thing I want to I want to talk about before we wrap up is. Um, is Robert Anderson's discovery of uh, Kosminski being um, arrested or ticketed, actually, I shouldn't have said arrested, for a failure to muzzle his dog in um, the city. And he was able to appear in front of the judge um, in 1889 and um, make a good um, presentation for himself. Wouldn't you guys agree? Uh, I'm I'm not quite as familiar with this story as I should be, but um, yeah, it does sound like he did. He made a good presentation of himself, uh, Mike. Yeah, again, uh, I looked briefly at the discussion, um, and it does seem that you know he presented himself quite well, um, which is going against the the beliefs that have been put forward. Um, you know, one's got to sort of look at this in the light as well as, you know, what what sort of class was he in at the time, um, you know, his social standing. Um, I believe you said earlier that he was living um, with his, was it his relatives? Correct. I believe he was living with his brother. Yeah. Uh, uh, Wolf Abrams, is that correct? Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, and the interesting thing about it is that this time... Um, Anderson and Swanson had had him um, masturbating continuously, eating out of the gutter, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. um, the, the prior years. So right. it kind of makes the case that it, it – and also um, the fact should be pointed out that he was um, arrested by the city police and then – um, according to Anderson, um, later became a city suspect, right? And right. they were the ones who were watching his house. 
so that that's an interesting bit of information. Um, but but um, but Kosminski's um, demeanor in court, from what the very brief um, press articles were posted, um, show a man who was um, and and um, his his uh, total uh, senses and. Um, not so much the uh, crazy gutter dweller as the police um, officials Anderson and Swanson claimed at the time. So that's kind of an important find. Would you Would you guys agree? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, not, yeah, I, I like not that we need any more information to eliminate Kosminski as a suspect, because um, honestly, I don't believe um, he was Jack the Ripper. Um, but it's just. Um, it's just adding further doubt on on Anderson and Swanson's um, recollections. Now, whether they were wrong in, in um, tagging Kosminski, Aaron Kosminski this way, or whether researchers have been wrong in um, identifying Aaron Kosminski as the Kosminski, um, then, you know, that, that, I guess that's still up to debate. So. I think that that's fodder for another show, to be honest with you, John. What well, about you, Mike? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Well, yeah, I well, think I think we should get some of the Kosminski people on this program. Well, I, I hope to do that. And anyone who wants to be on the show can be on the show, you know. I, as long as you have a uh, Skype account and a microphone on your computer, that's all it takes. Yeah. <laughs> Information on how to get a Skype account is, is going to be on your website, correct? Rippercast. Sure. I mean, anyone can Google Skype, and, and um, it's a free download. Yeah. Um, S-K-Y-P-E, S-K-Y-P-E. And um, there will be show notes on um, the website, www.rippernet.com. Um, show notes for the podcast which are any books that may have been mentioned, any websites that may... Whose child is that in the background? Is that yours, Mike? Yeah, it's not just Mike's and mine. Mike and I are childless, aren't we, Mike? No, no, that's, that's my two little ones come home. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sent my little one away for the podcast. It's, it's 7.30 over here now, so it's, it's their bedtime. Alrighty, well, uh, I'll wrap this up and say that uh, show notes for the podcast has links to all books, websites, individuals mentioned um, in this podcast are going to be available at www.rippernet.com in the podcast archive section of the site. And anyone is free to email comments, suggestions, and questions, and we'll address those on future podcasts at rippernet at Mac. Dot com. Um, are there any websites you guys would like to plug real quick? Or books coming out, Mike? Well, obviously, oh, case oh, oh, yeah, Casebook. Casebook uh, at jtrforums.com. Uh, jtrforums.co.uk. Uh, that's uh, Mr. Edwards' website. Uh, the gentleman I'd like to discuss uh, Donston with in the future uh, debate. Uh, those are the three, three off the top of my head. The right. English-speaking websites, the English-speaking websites, that is. All right, and we all uh, referenced books, and um, and those, the links to book, those books on Amazon will also be included in the show notes. So that wraps up. 
first episode of Rippercast. Hope you all enjoyed it. And, uh, Good night, we'll folks. See you next time. Yeah, see you later. All right. Take care. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.